there is a bone in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bone in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my words in in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Psalm 14 in the ESV. Well, hello and welcome to the podcast. Just kidding. We're not that cool. We're Come not on, that. Brian. We're not that cool. But <laughs> we, we we are kind of cool. I mean, I uh, helpful listener David Latchett, uh, PhD, pointed in us in the direction of a uh, local outfit there to you, uh, Gilead Sciences. Uh, I, have you heard of them? I believe that it was actually listener Chris Seahorn who pointed us to Gilead Sciences. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I did not scroll up far enough. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> you are totally, totally the uh, the originator of this. Uh, David did uh, provide some other additional information later on, but he was not the originator of this fantastic lead uh, that we are going to use uh, today. So thank you very much, Chris um, and David as well. Uh, but, uh, have you heard of Gilead sciences? Are they a pretty big, uh, figurehead there where you're at? Uh, where I am, I, I have no idea because oh. I don't, I have not been paying attention to local news at all. Um, sure. I've just been paying to discern. I, I see it was tested in St. Louis. I yeah. guess their, their company is actually located in uh, foster city CA, which okay. is California. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting for you. Non-Americans out there listening to our podcast. And for you Americans um, out there, it's just ca. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Foster City ca. Uh, getting a ca. That's Boston. That's Boston. That's the other yeah, side. That's the other, that's the other side. Um, so Gilead Sciences, why do we bring this up? Well, our podcast is called The Balm in Gilead. Mm-hmm. And did you know? Uh, that uh, apparently they were originally founded with the rather hard to pronounce for non-medical personnel, Ola Gogan. Uh, that was their original name. 
And apparently it refers to these small strands of DNA called oligomers uh, that target specific gene code sequences. Um, Interesting. And this is, this is information that I'm getting straight off the Wikipedias. That's a good um, place to go. But so there, there are some healing properties here. Basically, as I understand it, and I am not a medical professional, but the, the they have uh, created this drug called Reduzivazir, and it <laughs> is proving to be fairly effective against COVID-19, That's which is great. good. That's pretty cool. And the way it works is that this, it, it kind of like fakes part of the virus's RNA uh, that it needs to replicate. And it gets in there and just shuts down that process. Although um, it doesn't stop it immediately. The way it was explained in one article was that the, the virus itself has a fairly sophisticated spell checker. And so it will try and correct the problem, but it actually is unable to. But what that does is it takes the average hospital stay down from 15 days down to 11 days. So anytime you're helping people get better faster, that's really good. That's frees up hospital beds, you know, things like that. Yeah. So anyway, they have about 11,000 employees and um, about 25 different marketed treatments in the United States alone. And kind of why we're talking about them is because, they changed their name after they figured out uh, that these this kind of approach uh, would have healing properties. They named it after the ancient Balm of Gilead. Have you heard of the Balm of Gilead, uh, Brian? I have heard of the Balm of Gilead. According to Jim yes, Briggs. Yes, it's an it is, excellent podcast. Yeah, according to Jim Briggs, it's an excellent podcast that you and I host. He has <laughs> consistently called it the Balm of Gilead podcast to me. Um, I feel honored. Jim. Yes. We um, yeah. uh, also feel honored. Yes. Over I do. In Oklahoma. I, I am fairly certain that the reason that they changed their name to the Balm of Gilead is that they listened to a local podcast and they really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think, I think I, that's the reason. I don't think there's probably any other explanation yeah. uh, that makes sense anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, Obviously, we're talking about this because it has nothing to do with music, but has everything to do with Gilead <laughs> and that's and, and COVID nineteen, which is. Uh, have you ever heard of? There's a virus. It's called okay. uh, COVID nineteen. Are you familiar? I've heard it called something else. I've heard it called the European virus. Is I've heard that, it. I've heard it called a uh, big Rona. Mm. Funny thing about big Rona. Uh, there was a period of time where on Facebook. I was noticing a lot of, uh, you know, references to Rona. And I did ask who in the world is Rona. And I have, my kids have not let me forget that since. That's fun. Did you see the, the office meme where it was all of them were calling it the different things? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> like Jim is hilarious. like coronavirus. And then Dwight's like, it's COVID-19. And then... Oscar was like, it's the whatever SARS, whatever. And then uh, Andy was like, it's big Rona. I think one of them said it's the Chinese <laughs> virus. And then the last one was Creed speaks Mandarin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh man. Uh, yes, that was very, very hilarious. They really did a good job of nailing down all the different uh, personalities in that show, which are strangely reminiscent of a lot of personalities you see out there online today. Yeah. Uh, isn't that odd how a show would um, mimic uh, all these different people types uh, out there in the world today? Uh, anyway, something for everyone, I suppose. Uh, so, you know, Gilead's done something actually pretty nice. They have developed the stockpile. Uh, so they actually developed this drug, you know, decade over a decade ago, which I did not realize. I, I kind of figured they whipped it up or something real quick because they had an idea. Uh, turns out that's just a way that medicine does not get made. Uh, that that's that's absolutely not what happens. These things take decades of research, things like that. Um, so yeah. they had done this for kind of like SARS type viruses. You know, coronavirus, as far as I understand it, is just a type of a type of virus and uh, the COVID-19 is the specific thing, but yeah. that's getting a bit pedantic. Don't you think? I believe so. Um. Anyway, the, the cool thing is that they kind of built up this, this reservoir since January, they kind of started making it and they're actually donating that entire lot to uh, help people get better faster. Um, they also did some non-exclusive contracts with five different uh, generic drug manufacturers, and they're not even charging royalties uh, on that, which is just unheard of in the industry. Uh, so you think about all the research that went into that and all the money and time and people uh, that have you know, spent all this time developing this drug, and they are quite literally giving it away. Um which is pretty cool, right? That's I mean, pretty cool. That, yeah, that's pretty awesome. But in what could be a, a little bit of a foreshadowing of what we're going to be talking about today, um, and really, you know, we're not trying to speak badly of Gilead at all. I mean, this is pretty interesting. But um, one of the things that I also found in researching this is that they're they're very supportive of things that we as Christians would not accept. Uh, for instance, they're very supportive of uh, LGBTQ rights. They are uh, have a perfect score from the Human Rights Campaign uh, in their 2020 Corporate Equality Index. And that, for those of you who don't know, it, it kind of looks at how friendly is the workplace towards um, people who identify as uh, these various, um, uh, various things, uh, the LGBT or Q or anything else. Um, and not that we should shun people like this at all, but they are very supportive of this particular lifestyle, which in our view, in the biblical view is, uh, is called sinful. Mm -hmm. So Brian, uh -huh. how do we kind of reconcile like that? I mean, it brings up an important question. It does how ought a Christian question. respond to a company who provides these life-saving drugs even for free? Uh, but who's also uh, worked to uphold this lifestyle that, you know, we just can't affirm sure. as Christians. Yeah. And, and I would say, in especially in the, this particular context, um, the Lord gives common grace to everyone. Everybody receives sure. the same amount of common grace. Um, and in, I see this a lot in this particular company. This company wants people to uh, get better. They want to beat this 
coronavirus. You know, we, we want to find a treatment for coronavirus because it's very possible that it's never going away. Um, that yeah. new, that it's just, we, once we get a, it'll be like polio or like, um, measles and other viruses that are still around, but that we have been able to treat and we've been able to vaccinate for, and we have essentially been able to beat it. And so that's kind of what we as a society want to do. And the Lord has mm-hmm. given common grace to a lot of very smart individuals who have been able to make very, uh, very broad strides very quickly. And this is, this is one of them. Um, I don't think that we as Christians should hold people who do not claim to be Christians by our standards. Um, Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways. And there'll be, there are people that would argue that statement that I just made, but you know, I, I, as an individual don't, feel like it is my place as an individual to hold any individual not claiming to be a Christian to the Christian standard. That is God's, uh, that, that is God's position. Uh, it is my position, however, to call anyone who does claim to be a Christian out for not living up to a Christian standard. And so that is where the difference between our icebreaker topic and our main topic is going to, uh, really shine out. Um, and, uh, so one of the things that you had mentioned is, uh, they're not taking any royalties. Um, that's a, it's a very interesting, uh, thing that you said that because that's what we are going to be talking about is, is royalties. And what is a royalty? You may ask, uh, go ahead. Why don't you ask? Brian, what is a royalty? I'm so I'm so glad you asked that question, Grant. Me a, too. A royalty is um, it is a percentage of money that when something is purchased, uh, that percentage of money goes to the person who holds the royalty. So if um, let's say that Gilead did charge royalties to these companies, every drug or every pill and every however you know whatever prescription or whatever. Um, of the medicine that was purchased, Gilead would retain some of it. So even if they gave their supply away, mm-hmm. um, if they had charged a royalty, then for every pill that was purchased, uh, they would get a little bit back, which is not a bad thing. A lot of, a lot of people, um, that's how a lot of people survive is they might sell something or, or license something out for very, very inexpensive, but there's a royalty and that royalty will never go away. And so they may be able to make a lot more money based on royalties than if they had like sold it for a fixed amount. Um, and this is also how the music industry works. Uh, people don't sell songs. I don't write a song and then sell it to someone to sing. I, um, when I write the song, I basically license that song out to someone. Like someone says, I want to sing this song that that, you know, that song kind of becomes quote unquote theirs. However, Mm -hmm. if I have a writing credit on it for every time that song is played, I get money. I get a royalty. Every time that song is downloaded, I get money. I get a royalty. And so that's what a royalty is. Um, okay. So that sounds pretty important to a musician. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's that's how you make money, it sounds like to me. Like, uh, someone plays your song on Spotify, you get 0.01 cents. And, you know, over time, though, that adds up or whatever. Yeah. And you can actually make a living, especially if you're popular enough. Uh in in music yeah um 
little known fact, I might have told you this before. My pa- my old pastor in Arkansas, um, mm-hmm. he was a church planner. He came from a very large church in Atlanta, and one of the music directors at uh, his church in Atlanta was uh, Laura Story. And yeah, uh, he ah, nice. Yeah, and he told me once he was talking with her about um, the song she wrote, "Indescribable," and uh, she has a writing credit on the song. She wrote it, and uh, Chris Tomlin heard it and wanted to sing it. So she uh, basically signed it to him to sing and she has a writing credit. He has a writing credit cause he kind of did some edits to it. And um, so he, so my pastor was asking her, he's like, so uh, indescribable. Does that like get you like a date night, you know, once a month or something? And she's like, that gets me my mortgage payment. Wow. Yeah. Hey, that's all right. Which is all right. It's what you do. If you, if you make one big song, I remember hearing a story in uh and when I was in seminary, that there was a, a former student that had written not a Laura, not a Laura. D- d- this is this, this is, is a different story. story. Okay, you know, different, different story. Different story. Yeah, completely unrelated. Completely unrelated. I'm going to just keep repeating what you say. Um, so there was an instance. <laughs> it's good for radio. Yes, there was an instance where there was a former student who had written a Christmas song that got picked up and just went wild, and he made like a million bucks and royalties on that, like in a very short amount of time, and then it kind of fizzled out but that's hey a million bucks is a million bucks a million bucks is a million bucks and you know if i had i can make a million bucks if i had a million dollars i'd be rich that is the line of a song of a name of a band that i can't say on this radio station oh okay well it was bare naked ladies oh i've heard of them they're a bunch of canadian men yeah (laughs) so they're old now they are old um so anyway back to the story so, every time that a church plays music, they are supposed to um, they're supposed to display all of the copyright information. They are also supposed to declare to CCLI uh, what songs they played in every week. And CCLI will actually, uh, from time to time, they will um, kind of audit churches. Like they will send out, mm-hmm. they will reach out to churches in particular and be like, "So, I, I we need your listings for the past six months." Um, every church is supposed to declare every song every week, but mm-hmm. uh, I'd say that there's a lot of churches that don't even know that they're supposed to do that. But anyway, um, so this is done so that the people who wrote the songs that they chose to sing, especially when they did, when I think when you, um, display the lyrics like that yes. has a lot to do with it. Not necessarily singing the songs, but displaying the lyrics to the songs is, is mm-hmm. where they get you. And, um, so if everyone in the church would just memorize all of the words to all the songs and you wouldn't have this issue, but, um, <laughs> uh, almost as if maybe you could have like a book or something and then, um, just get like a whole bunch of books and then pass them out at the, at the church. Maybe you could even just keep them in the back of the, uh, of the seat in front of you that, and that it could, could be ready. And then you could just like, maybe have them all coordinated and say, Hey, mm-hmm. turn to, you do you Turn do song number here here's here's a big thing one twenty three what if you purchase a hymnal yeah I've heard then of, oh then the songwriters uh-huh. get royalties <laughs> for purchasing royalties. the hymnal yeah unless of course they're you all public the domain yes and you go exclusive solemnity and then you are singing the word of God that is also true also if you go exclusive public domain you won't have this issue either but um. 
let's get back on track. So oh, every time you told me you, I could go off track tonight, man. I did. I did. I'm give just letting my mind wander. I did give you permission. So um, <laughs> we'll just see where this bunny trail hops. Um, so every time that you sing any song and display the lyrics, uh, you pay royalties to the yeah. songwriters. And so um, that becomes very interesting. I mentioned earlier about Gilead Sciences that, um, you know, we can't hold non-Christians to Christian standards, which I, I stand by that, especially from the individual level. Um, but if Gilead Sciences were to start to dip their toes into the worship songwriting and start writing music that passes our discernment tests, then, uh, and then if they were to play those on the radio, if we sang them in our churches, we would then start to fund Gilead Sciences, which could be fine if you're talking about COVID-19 medication, but it's less than fine when you're talking about uh, their transgender policies. Um, and so it gets into that, that gray area. So uh, what we're going to talk about in this episode at large is what I'm calling the royalties argument. If a song... Um, if a song is written and it's fine, like there's nothing in it theologically wrong, there might be stuff in it that's theologically great. Uh, and, uh, and the song is singable, it's enjoyable. Um, and so if it passes all those tests, we should just sing it, right? We should, we should at least put it in our pile of songs that are acceptable. And if mm-hmm. there comes a time where the song really works with our, with our sermon, we should just sing it. It's it passes all the the tests. It is fine song. Why not? Are there any other reasons that you can possibly think of that would give you pause for singing a song if all el- if all else um, considered, it's the perfect song. Enter the royalties argument. Um. So there was a uh, there's a video that we posted in last week's. Um, show notes kind of got there by accident, but it's definitely worth watching. And if you happened to watch it, uh, then you already know what I'm talking about. If you haven't watched it, we're, we'll probably put it in the show notes this week as well. Uh, there's a, um, I guess, I don't know if it's like a YouTube show or whatever, but it's called wretched. Uh, I don't even remember the guy who who does it. I don't even know who these people are. I really don't. I don't know. They it's, I recognize the guy's face. Uh, he's on, uh, he gets quoted a lot in the reform pub and on like a uh, reform thug life. Todd Friel? Possibly. Re- reform- no, I mean, that's, that's who, who he is. Todd okay. Friel. Cool. Yeah. That guy. So, uh, he gets, they quote him on like reform thug life and, um, and other kind of similar discernment, entertainment, discernmentainment podcasts and YouTube channels and stuff like that. But anyway, he's a discernment guy. He also uh, wears a suit. He does wear a suit. And, uh, and so he was talking about, uh, Bethel, which is why we posted it in last week's cause we talked about Bethel last week. And he also mentioned Hillsong and elevation. Um, and his argument was we should not sing any music from any of those three places because of the royalties argument. And he made a really interesting, uh, he made a really interesting, um, argument. He said, 
if Planned Parenthood wrote a song that was doctrinally sound, it passed all of our discernment tests, um, was ultimately a song that if anyone else had written it, we wouldn't have any problem singing it, should we sing it? Knowing that every time we sing it, it funds Planned Parenthood and funds more abortions. Um, the answer to that question is absolutely not. No Christian should sing a song knowing that in doing so it will fund abortions. Um, and it's, that seems like a really like outlandish argument. It is kind of, I it, mean, and it, and, it's, and it is an outlandish argument. He even says that it's an outlandish argument, but what he goes on to say is singing a song by, uh, that is written by someone who is propagating a false gospel is worse. And he says so mm. because those, uh, and in his opinion, he said that singing a song by Bethel funds Bethel and Bethel is sending people to hell because they're teaching heresy and people are believing that heresy and they're dying, believing heresy and they are going to hell. And so he says that singing Bethel music funds sending people to hell and that that's worse than funding Planned Parenthood. Um, I think that that it's a bit harsh, but there's a lot of truth in it. And, um, and I, and I mentioned in last episode as well, like if, if like the, the church of Latter-day Saints were to write a song, would we sing it? Like if it, if it works for us, like if it, if everything that this says in the song in a vacuum would work, would we sing a song knowing that it came from the church of Latter-day Saints? Uh, knowing well, they sing songs by us. They do sing songs by <laughs> us, which is, which is why, which is why this is a lot less of a far-fetched, um, scenario than the Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is if an LDS person wrote a song that worked for us, would we sing it knowing that, that, we would be funding LDS. Um, if I could hide to collab, maybe. Maybe. That's kind of, yeah. Anyway. It's a beautiful tune. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. So, no, it's fine. Rabbits. Rabbits. <laughs> Rabbits. We have three in our backyard. I don't know if I mentioned that to you. We have so many in our backyard. Um, we it's had, the worst. It is. We, we put up chicken wire over our uh, vegetables so that they won't eat them anymore. Um, that said. So... <laughs> so if we believe certain ministries like Bethel to be uh to be propagating either a heterodox heterodoxical gospel, a heretical gospel, or if we believe them to be funding um you know being being friendly with you know just different organizations that we are uncomfortable with, should we sing their music even if it passes all of our tests. And, um, and so this question, it, it's, it is a question we should all be asking. It is a question that, um, I have wrestled with for, for quite a while. Um, I've, mm-hmm. I have heard, uh, a lot of people just say that, that like, I've, I've heard this argument kind of be chalked up to the same level as, um, as a kind of a, a crazy conspiracy theory. Like, oh, that's like, why would you even, why, why, like, are you seriously even like giving that two seconds of your thought? And yes, yes, I seriously am giving that more than two seconds of my thought. And I think everybody should. Um, (laughs) Yeah. How many minutes are we in here? You know, and you're, you're listening to it and you are. And so it, it, and so I just really want to challenge you to think is the royalties argument 
a good argument or is it a crazy conspiracy theory or is it even like something like, um, am I just being like jaded or am I just being jealous or, or, you know, how, you know, what is the heart Uh, of the matter? Um, well, so as you're sitting there explaining to me the royalties argument and I get it, you know, the problem that I think I would have, mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'd have it. I'm, I'm having it right now and maybe you can help me is that it relocates the argument from being about truth and being Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, who is, who is sharing that truth to being more about like, what are you supporting through, uh, through particular action or whatever. So I, I feel like it's relocating the argument and it doesn't do say, have anything to say to the, the kind of the, the, the original argument, which is mm-hmm. uh, that these songs um, very well are, you know, corrupted and that maybe they shouldn't, you know, just as we wouldn't want to sing, say a Bethel song mm-hmm. or a Hillsong song in our churches, we wouldn't want to sing a song by say a no, an atheist such as um, Ralph Vaughn Williams. Ralph Vaughn Williams wrote, I believe, um, I believe, Oh, Holy Night. But he was, you know, he was an atheist as far as I know. Yeah. And, um, in like what you're saying, you know, if, if an atheist wrote a song that passes all this, the, the, the tests, all the discernment tests, if he was, sure. if he threw, um, an incredible amount of common grace felt or saw glimpsed the truth of the gospel to the point where it moved him to write mm-hmm. something that was, uh, doctrinally sound, um, you know, if he then later recanted because he never had true conversion, but was more like a stony soil Christian who showed some fruit, but then the sun came out and dried him up. You know, what do we do with those? What do we do with those songs? Um, like what do we do with anything that Ray Bolts ever wrote? Or what do Mm. we, what do we do with anything that, you know, Jennifer Knapp ever wrote? What do we do? Oh yeah. Uh, and what do we do with things that, um, that Derek Webb wrote? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we do with things that Dustin Kinsry wrote? We sing Dustin Kinsry songs at, at our church and I love Dustin Kinsry's music. Um, what, but, what songs did he write? Uh, he was part of a band called the modern post. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. But he's also the lead singer of a band called thrice. And, um, he was one of the like Mars Hill worship leaders. Ah, uh, okay. And then after, uh, that fiasco, he kind of mm. walked away and I oh. haven't, I haven't done a lot of research into it since, but he's, um, yeah, he went through, he's at least, he at least went through a period where he was walking away and I haven't, I haven't looked into it yet. Mm-hmm. I plan to, cause I plan to do an episode about him, um, mm-hmm. in the future, but yeah. And so what do we do with, what do we do with that? Um, and it's a very good question. And I, and I don't think that the royalties argument is the end all be all argument. Like, well, am I funding 
this? Am I funding someone who is doing this? You know, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit different when it's one person who has a very, I guess I'd say a very small platform or is who, or who may just be publicly like questioning things versus an entire ministry that has a lot of influence in the broader church and who may or may not be leading a lot of people in the broader church away from Christ. Um, Mm. and, and it's, and there's not a perfect line. There's not like a black and white line. Um, there is a line somewhere funding Planned Parenthood. Obviously that would be, that'd be wrong funding the church of Latter-day Saints. I think that would be obviously wrong funding, um, you know, funding Andy Stanley's church. Would that be considered wrong? And I'd say no. Yeah. No, I, I would not consider funding Andy Stanley's church through singing music that they wrote wrong because he's not, at this point in time, he's not a false teacher. He is on a slippery slope, um, as, <laughs> as they say. Um, but he is not like fully like thrown down the, the heresy gauntlet. Um, and every person, no person has perfect theology. If you want to sing perfect music, pull out the Psalter. Um, mm-hmm. if you want to sing, if you want to sing, uh, and I'm trying to choose my words correctly, but I, I think that there is some merit to singing quote unquote broken music because we can relate to something that is broken being, being justified and, you know, and made new, you know, that's, that's something that we can really relate to. Um, which I think is one of the reasons why God gives us the gift of writing music as broken individuals. But we still need to, you know, show discernment. We still need to sing songs that are theologically sound. Um, they might have, you know, they might have something in them that that brings us to be like, you know, is that the best way to word that? You know, did you get your message across clearly? You know, we should strive for that, but we're not going to achieve perfection. Um, mm-hmm. Only, only the Psalms can achieve perfection, but we can, we can definitely clear out all of the cobwebs. Uh, in Christ alone, doesn't there's not a single, there's not a single line in that song that makes me question, you know, whether or not we should sing that. Um, right. And I, and I'd say in a lot of places, the issues would be musical. Like, is this song singable? Uh, is a song one that, um, that the congregation can sing comfortably because if they don't, then they're not going to sing. And if they're not going to sing, then what's the point? Um, and that's another, that's another argument altogether. But this idea of, um, this idea of the royalties argument, we don't want to fund false teachers. You know, we don't want to, uh, we don't really want to do something that is going to make the, uh, you know, the tax collectors out there even wealthier. We, we don't want to do something that is going to ultimately hurt the spread of the gospel. And, and it's just, it's crazy that this is a, a conversation that we need to be having. It's crazy that nobody's having it. But it's crazy that it sh- that this is something that is that needs to be 
it needs to be had because we should in an ideal world just be able to listen to a song and judge it on its own and, and even early on in this particular podcast i talked about the potential of the seventh category of questions and that's who wrote the song and that's kind of what we're getting into is that sit that seventh set of questions um and as I've as I mentioned, even then, I, I go back and forth on whether or not that this should be a section to talk about, and, and I think ultimately I'm deciding now it is. It's it's it is definitely a a conversation that people should should look into. Um, and as we look into it, I want to talk about uh, what the Bible has to say about false teachers, because it has quite a lot to say about it. I have uh, I've got pulled up several passages. Uh, this first one is from Matthew 7. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus says, uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Mm-hmm. You will recognize them by their fruits. And that's, that's a really important line. You will recognize them by their fruits. Um, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Um, So you look at pastors who... um, You look at pastors who are propagating a gospel of money. You look at, like, Joel Osteen... um, he is a false teacher. Mm. You can tell mm-hmm. by his fruit. He is buddy buddy with all sorts of liberal activists, and he uh, he refuses to talk about sin. He he has a ginormous mansion. You know he, um, which there's nothing wrong with having a mansion. I, I'm going to say this now. There's nothing wrong with having a mansion, but why? Why are you going to have a mansion? Are you going to have it so that you can live in in you know, this glorious comfort, or are you going to have it so that you can help, you know, other people reach the Lord? And, uh, which is possible. You can have a house that's kind of a refuge house. You can have a house that's big so that you can do foster care. There's lots of reasons to have a big house, but I don't think his reasons are very great. He just has it for his own personal comfort. Um, and, and so there you go. You have, you can see his fruit, you can see what he cares about in the way he lives his life. He cares about himself. Um, there are other pastors that are very similar. Um, in First John, First uh, John four, it says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God." And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Uh, I'm going to go on. I'm going to read something from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Okay. It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Uh, in these passages, we, we kind of get that um, the Bible is warning us as people and as church leaders um, not to, uh, or is teaching us how to tell who is a wolf in sheep's clothing, who is a false teacher. We can tell who's a false yeah. teacher by their fruit, we, but we can tell it also by testing the spirits. And how do you test the spirit? You know, you, you see what they say versus what the Bible says. Um, and then what happens when you swerve from your faith, you know, you make shipwreck and you get tossed out to Satan so that you can learn not to blaspheme. You know, we, we are given strong commands to guard the church from false teachers. We are told to, um, to guard ourselves from false teachers. Uh, we are told that the best way to do this is by, um, comparing what we are seeing to what the Bible says. Um, I'm going to go further. I'm going to talk about second Peter and then, uh, I'm going to do a passage in Jude as well. Okay. Um, I got him. So, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destruction, destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, uh, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to to extinction, making them an example, but, but what is going to happen to the ungodly, of what is going to happen to the ungodly? And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, uh, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Um, passage in Jude is very similar, and I'm only going to read part of it because a lot of it is almost repeated from that pa- uh, Second Peter passage. It says, uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these passages talk about um, that there will be false teachers. So if we as Christians today can look at people and say, those are false teachers, um, we shouldn't be surprised that there are false teachers because Jesus said there will be false teachers. Jesus' disciples said there will be false teachers. And so we can't look at everyone who is teaching and say, these are all fine teachers. We have to operate under the assumption that some are probably false teachers And how can we tell if these teachers are false teachers? We look at their fruit. We look at what they're teaching. We compare what they're teaching with the teaching of the Bible. And uh, and then we go from there. I've got one more passage, and this one is an interesting one. I pulled it up. It's from uh, Ezekiel. And and this is kind of the punishment from long ago that the second Peter and the Jude passage kind of refer to. It says, Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, where there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, uh, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, uh, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Um, those are very harsh words, uh, basically saying, you know, these false teachers, they will build a, they'll build a kingdom, you know, they'll build a wall, you know, they'll, they'll build, you know, these fortified, um, cities and they'll make them look nice and pretty. But when the Lord destroys them, they're not gonna look pretty anymore. I, I wonder when this coronavirus thing is all done, if there will be uh, some of those churches that will be, uh, you know, as if hit by great hailstones and yeah. uh, wondering where their beautiful whitewashed walls went um, because now everybody who is there uh, turned out to be just sort of a uh, a lukewarm Christian who discovered that they had a lot of things that they could be doing other than attending this particular congregation. Yeah, and maybe that's. I mean, I mean, I don't doubt that there will be many that fall away, kind of after a result of this, where um, the church is purified in a sense, like where people who are not really part of the church are driven off. Um, but I wonder if the same is true for churches of false teachers as well, if that yeah. will happen. Yeah, and I don't know. And there, there'll That's be speculation more than anything. Yeah, and I can see uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where that where the landscape is. And I'd say this is definitely a discussion for a different day, probably. But um, mm, just in short, enough. 
I think that a lot of small churches are not going to be able to open back up. That that there's going to be a great culling of very small country churches that just aren't going to be able to survive. But a lot of these churches that are false gospel preaching churches have a lot of money. Um, it's a matter of whether or not their pastors are going to want to give up some of that money to get the churches back up and running. That's another question. Or will they say, ah, I'm going to call it quits. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. But um, I, 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 I don't I, see I don't these... know about those country churches. Uh, like, yeah. like on what, what grounds are you saying that? Because um, I've lived in my fair share of mm-hmm. uh, smaller towns. And in a lot of these towns, the sense of community is, even, is much stronger than yeah. in uh, larger churches, say. Yeah, and that's that's true as well. But I've I've seen a lot of churches that are like struggle to keep their doors open be, or to pay their bills and stuff because mm-hmm. um, there'll be a lot of like elderly people in the congregation, and it's just an older church. They're not getting a lot of new people in, and um, the elderly retired people are living on fixed incomes and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And in some respects, you know, a lot of those communities might be losing a lot of their their congregants to coronavirus but at the same time you know i think that like you said if the young people that aren't going there if the churches weren't like if they're more like tradition based and that's another thing i've seen a lot of tradition based churches but we're getting on a really really off handed uh rabbit trail <laughs> but um rewind i don't know we're just we're just speculating all about random stuff that has nothing to do with royalties but um so going back, back on coronavirus, let's go. Yeah, we're, we're going back to the false teachers idea. Um, I, so I, I said I just talked a lot about a bunch of stuff about false teachers, but how does that relate to the royalties argument? That's that's kind of where I want to to get. So, um, false teachers obviously are teaching a false doctrine. That is that is the definition of what a false teacher is a teacher teaching a false doctrine it's not that they're bad teachers it's that their Mm -hmm. message is bad and um it is very hard to write a song um that contains bad theology without being immediately recognized as a song that has bad theology and by that, what I'm saying is like, there's an art form to writing a song that has just enough right theology in it to kind of go under the radar. And, um, I, I think that a lot of these ministries know exactly how to do it. They know exactly what to say to, they know the exact right buzzwords. They know everything that they need to say to get, to get kind of through that discernment, um, a discernment questionnaire for the, for the majority of churches. And, uh, and so that's how we get a whole lot of music from these particular ministries. And, uh, it's very difficult to actually like propagate a false message and, and, and do that widespread. So what a lot of people, like what a lot of these arguments, like what this wretched, um, video kind of says is, you know, that what they want to do is they want everyone to be singing these, this music. In fact, like this music, 
you 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 kind of alluded to this. Their music is so like theologically shallow that LDS mm-hmm. churches can sing it and have no problem. Oh sure, um, but uh, what really what I was referring to is LDS churches will sing plenty of the hymns. Yeah, they'll sing "Great Is Thy Faithfulness." Yeah, you know, uh, from what I can tell, uh, this is based on my understanding of. Um, people on Spotify or whatever. And I'll like, man, these people are really talented and they do this hymn very well. And then I'll find out, Oh, they're a Mormon. <laughs> all the, you know, Mor- type. the Mormon tabernacle choir. Yeah. Um, uh, well, usually not that, not as overt as that, but usually um, there was one group, for instance, uh, El Yene, uh, I believe was their, the, the name of them. And they're these very talented singers and uh just gorgeous sound you know yeah but then i looked into them i was like man i'm really liking this music and then i found out like oh (laughs) yep sure enough there's the you know all the telltale signs like uh the songs that they choose sing and yet they can sing um a, a a solid song very sweetly but then you begin to wonder, well, what do they think this means? You right. know what I mean? Yeah. And that's true as well. And, uh, and you know, take this for what it's worth, but I, I was more annoyed that Switchfoot collaborated with Jen Johnson than I was that they collaborated mm. with, um, Lindsey Sterling. And so. I remember that, uh, series of, uh, text messages from you. Yeah. And I, I felt bad for you. Yeah, I think some of that just had to do with like what song it was. Um, so Switchfoot, yeah, Switchfoot collaborated. Yeah, Switchfoot collaborated with um, with the song that I got lyrics tattooed to my arm with uh, Jen Johnson, who was quoted multiple times as saying that the Holy Spirit is blue, like the genie from Aladdin, and sneaky and funny. And uh, yeah, I've got a mm. major issue with Jen Johnson. But um, so Jen Johnson is the daughter-in-law of Bill Johnson of Bethel uh, Church. And then uh, Lindsay Serling is the dancing violinist who also happens to be an LDS. So um, I am. Yeah, I like her pretty well. Too. I like her pretty well. I mean, and if you get a chance, you should listen to her collaboration with Switchfoot. They did uh, uh, it was voices from their um, most recent album. And it is fantastic. Yeah. Love that song. Uh, we'll link to it in the show. The Lindsay Sterling version is way better than the original version. I was very pleased. Anyway, so that's another rabbit trail. But anyway, uh, just talking about you know, <laughs> LDS uh, theology, they they claim to be Christians. You know, they they claim to be uh, they they claim that the church was under a lot of turmoil during this time, and they had there's a lot of corruption. And Joseph Smith was given new information that was supposed to fix the corruption. And so they believe that they have a third Testament. And that's what yes. the book of the, the book of Mormon is the third Testament of scripture, which doesn't make any sense because the Testament's a covenant and there was not a, a third covenant. It was just a <laughs> third iteration of revealing. I don't know. They, there's a whole lot that's wrong with, with the origin of, of all of that. But 
Um, but they believe that they are Christians, that they what they have is the correct interpretation of these ancient texts, and um, and that we are just all mistaken. And uh, and so of course they would they would appreciate Judeo Christian heritage and sure and yeah. music, and they would just they would just interpret it themselves to mean what they want it to mean. Um, and if an LDS were to write a song that would be considered fine in the Christian church. I, I guarantee you there are some churches that would have no problem playing it. Um, oh yeah. I think we've all been to places like that before. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's why I kind of brought that one up as, as a, a possible scenario. Cause I think that's a much more realistic scenario than Planned Parenthood writing a Christian song because Planned Parenthood would write it like specifically to, to be a wolf in sheep's clothing to, to trick Christians into paying them money. And so, uh, that, that would be a conspiracy theory. Whereas an LDS, they would want to do it to proselytize us. They would want us to listen to their music and be like, Oh, I can agree with this. What else can I agree with from them? And they would use that as a tool to kind of lure us away into what they believe because they believe that they're trying to correct our error. Um, and I don't see very much different between that and Bethel. Bethel is, they mm-hmm. believe that they have secret knowledge, that their secret knowledge is correct. They believe that they have the correct uh, method and, you know, and in that is evidenced by quote unquote, the Holy spirit coming to visit their church service in a, in physical manifestation AKA the gold dust that Bill Johnson pumped into their fog machines. Um, and so I, I don't, I really just don't see much difference between like what a church that is acting in that, in that manner would be toward like an LDS. They, mm-hmm. they put, they put their music out there specifically to get us to look at it and be like, Oh, Bethel, that sounds really nice. I've heard several songs by Bethel. You know, I, I hear that name mm-hmm. all the time. I like this song. I like that song. You know, Raise a Hallelujah, that's a fun song to sing. You know, Reckless Love, that one's pretty provocative. I liked that one. Um, you know, what are all these other songs? Stand in Your Love, that one was pretty catchy. Uh, these are all coming from Bethel. That's pretty cool. I'll look more into them. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, they have this ministry where they, they, they have this school where they're trying to get people to get tapped into their spiritual gifts. That sounds really cool. I want to give them all of my money and move out to California and try to become super spiritual. That sounds like that's what God wants me to do. You know, that's, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's what they, that's kind of, that's how they prey on people. You know, they, they get people that are, that are really seeking something more spiritually. Um, and they, they pull them in and they try to teach them, um, you know, how to, how to do all this. And, uh, and it's, it's a con, and uh, in in some yeah. in some ways, I think that LDS are more like uh, they're probably um, more genuine. You know, they're still wrong, but you know they're they're more genuine in their motives than than uh, the leaders of of Bethel. Who you know you you've got to be malicious when you are when you are actively pumping gold dust into your fog machines to trick your congregation into yeah. worshiping it, and that's just there's no forgiving that. Um, 
But have you ever, did you ever see a TV show? It came out um, right before the writer strike. If you remember that way back when um, it was called, it sounds familiar. It was called the 4,400. Um, I don't remember the, that show now. All right. So the premise of the show, the 4,400, um, over a course of like 70 years, there were 4,400 people uh, that were abducted from their from the timeline and then they were dropped all at once into um into seattle washington um and so these 4400 people that had been gone upwards of 70 years some of them had just been gone a few weeks um all arrive at the same same time same place and they have no memory that anything changed turns out they all have superpowers and uh, it also turns out that it was people from the future that took them in order to send them back at just the right time so that they could basically set in motion certain events that needed to happen in order for the world to survive a major, uh, a major catastrophe. But there was a group that started what was called the 4400 Center. And in the 4400 Center, anybody could go to it and they could take these classes and they could pay all this money and they could um, learn how to untap their inner 4400. And eventually what they are promised is at the end of it, they would, uh, they would open up their own 4400 ability. And that is what the Bethel... They could call it the 4400 Club and have a TV station. They could, but it is literally like the exact same scenario as the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Um, if you go to the school, you pay them the money, you attend all their stuff that they want you to, you will eventually be able to unlock your super duper spiritual gift and be able to heal people and, and all this stuff. And it's literally the same premise as this make believe show. And that just drives me, that just drives me insane that they would, um, that they would just be abusing people like that. There, there's absolutely no. Uh, there's there's no justification for for what they're doing, um, and um, essentially, any time that we sing a Bethel song in our church, mm-hmm. we are funding it. And so that that is the royalties argument. Um, so what about songs that they write that do actually pass the test? you know, how do we handle it? Like, um, I'll just give an example. The lion and the lamb. That's a song that we do at our church. Um, there's some great gospel truth in it. There's, it, it points to some great truth of the scripture. It, it, it handles scripture very well. It, it passes all of the theological tests. Um, so what do we do with that song? You know, do we sing it? Do we, do we decide to sing it? Because even though if it's just one song, is it okay to still sing it and and pay that, that money to Bethel? Like how, I guess deep down, how much is it really helping them? Like how much, you know, if we sing that song once a month, 12 times a year, um, how much money is that really giving to, to Bethel and how much are they really able to fund through that? And that's a good question as well. And the answer is it doesn't give them that much money. Like they don't get a whole lot from our little church singing it. And so is it okay? 
you know, that, that's, that's the question. Is it, is it okay? What, what, what do you think? Well, I, yeah, I, because uh, eventually you're going to get into the same thing that you, that any Christian gets into, like we talked about the, at the top of the show, or you, you, you know, where buying a pair of jeans just completely, you know, wrecks you because, well, where do these jeans come from? Do yeah. child laborers make these jeans? You know, yeah. things like that. All the way down to, the, you know, how are these, you know, jeans, wh- wh- where do they come from? You know, those kinds of things where, you know, trace anything back far enough. And there's probably some element of sin there. Yeah. And so uh, what are we as Christians responsible for? You know, we can't go off and make our own, you know, Christian society. We, uh, we that could. Would, well, it would not work very well, I don't think. <laughs> um, but so where does our responsibility start? Where does our responsibility end? Um, and I think part of that is just how aware are we of what all this is? Because up until, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I didn't realize all the things that, you know, say Bethel was into. And before we started this show, I didn't realize all the things that the big four are yeah. really promulgating, right? The ideas that they they yeah. have. And so... What do we do with that information now that we know it? Well, I'm, you know, I have an out. I I don't choose songs right. that for, for the church to sing. And if I did, I have thought about this before. Um, like, what would what would I do? And I'd honestly, I'd probably sing the Psalms. I've got to a point where it's like for me anyway. If I were doing the one choosing. I feel like seeing God's inspired word mm-hmm. is the perfect way out of that kind of predicament, right? Yeah. And that's Where, not a bad thing. Yeah, no. But I'm not in that position. And so do I sing along? Well, sometimes, uh, especially if the song passes, you know, the theological tests. Yeah. Uh, if, it is a song that glorifies God um, or that I can glorify God through. Um, and so it, I, I think it does matter, but also that I think there's an element of uh, kind of trusting the people that God has put in uh, over us to take us through some of these songs and hopefully they're the ones who are, have wrestled with this and have yeah. come to some sort of, uh, some sort of settlement on it. And maybe that's just me taking an easy out. I don't know. No, no, no. But, that's, that's not an easy out by any means. I suppose not. But at the same time, do we bear any responsibility? Do we bear some? Yeah, and, and I think that's just a really difficult place to be. And it, it, it it's funny because it does. It extends beyond the songs that we sing. You know, this is 
this is all over the place in yeah. how we, what we buy, who we work for, what causes we support, anything like that. Yeah. And, and ultimately like, you know, I remember back in the day where people were like, you don't, you should completely boycott Disney because they, uh, Oh sure. Are, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then it's like, well, if you boycott Disney, then you have to boycott Walmart and, and target and all these other stores. Like you, like it's, where does the line stop? Like if you're really, really going to boycott Disney, where does the line stop? And and it, it goes on and on and on. And, and it's really hard to boycott Disney because their fingers are in everything. But mm-hmm. the big difference I would say is um, Disney is not trying to tell me who Jesus is. Not really. Like they're not really trying to, to, to tell me how to, um, how to specifically worship Jesus. They're telling me a lot of times not to worship Jesus, but, um, you know, they're not, they're not trying to direct my, uh, specific worship practices while I'm at church. Whereas Bethel is. Mm -hmm. And, and that is where the difference lies. Um, you know, we, we get into, uh, you know, did did a child make the pants that I'm wearing? I don't know, and and I think to some degree, you know, the passage that talks about uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, it's, it just says like, don't ask. You know, if mm-hmm. someone offers this to you, don't ask, just eat it. And if they offer it to you and say, hey, this has been sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. Um, you know, if someone gave me a pair of pants and said, hey, child slave laborers made this, do you want them? I'll be like, no. <laughs> Good answer. But, you know, if if someone says, hey, I outgrew these pants, do you want them? I'll be like, sure. You know, they look like they fit, you know. And so and a lot of times there's, you know, the don't ask, don't, don't tell issues apply. Um, but at the same time, when you're talking about worship practices and you're talking about who Jesus is, who God is, and what the gospel is, what the law is. Um, those are important questions. Uh, and we do get into, you know, the seventh section of, well, who wrote it? You know, if I don't know who wrote a song and I'm just listening to it in a vacuum, I'm going to make a decision based on, based on it in a vacuum. There's a lot of times I don't necessarily look into who wrote it. And so if Mm -hmm. I were to hear a Bethel song, and think, oh wow, this is a good song, and um, and then decide to play it at church before I looked into who wrote it. Then that's you know that that is a completely different thing. Like I'm not knowingly paying money to Bethel um, to sing the song, and and as I said before, they're not getting a whole lot. Like it's not like every time I play the song, they get $8,000 to go do something, you know, that that's not how it works. Um, but if 8,000 churches all sing their song, then they get quite a bit. And so it's, you know, there's a, there's the line, you know, if I'm knowingly giving them anything, then I just have to basically, if that bothers me, I shouldn't do it. If it doesn't bother me, then it's probably fine. Uh, it's it's a matter of the conscience, and I just I just think that we should all be having the discussion. 
Now, when you go back into the whole, um, just the theological testing of songs, let's say that there is a song that is old. Uh, it's in the public domain mm-hmm. and it passes all of the theological tests. I'm going to use for an example. It is well with my soul. Uh, Horatio Spafford um, wrote this song later in his life. He began a cult and just went completely off the rails. Um, if I sing it as well with my soul, I am not still funding his cult that went off the rails. Uh, it is in the public domain. Nobody gets the royalties for the song because anyone can sing it for free because it's public domain. It's that old. And eventually every song that is written today, a hundred years from now will be public domain. And if it has stood the test of time, then it's not going to matter because the royalties will no longer be in the mix. And so that's, um, that's something to also consider. This is a temporary issue. The, the royalties argument only applies to a, to a handful of songs, really. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. Technically it's a temporary issue, Yeah, but I mean, you're talking, what is it? 70 years after the death of the creator or something like that. I, yeah. I'm not up on my yeah, law a- there, but it's not going to affect us. You know what I mean? It's not right. Like... Right. Yeah. I'm, I don't, I don't have to hold out until, um, until Bill Johnson dies before I, you know, it, that's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's a temporary issue in that a hundred years from now, like my grandkids will be able to sing a lot of the songs that, that we are discussing today. But would they, but would they is a good question. Cause those, these songs you know, aren't going to stand the test of time. So that's, that, that's, part of my point yeah. too and why I kind of am saying that this argument is important and all mm-hmm. but I also feel like it sidesteps the the real issue the main issue of aren't there aren't there better songs that we could be singing already Absolutely. you know and so why why would we add these to our repertoire if if this isn't something that necessarily is worth our time so something i think about a lot is are these songs ones that i want on my lips you know in my dying days yeah assuming that i have that opportunity to kind of know when the end is coming right um i don't think so i you know not not me and then i think about my kids because they're the one these are the songs they're growing up with Are these the songs that I want on their lips as they, you know, are these the kinds of songs that are going to give them strength and, and courage in, in some of the darkest days of their life, not just on their deathbed, but you know, just in any uh, difficult time. And again, I, I don't think so. So what songs are those? What songs should they, should we be singing instead then? And that opens up a whole different conversation because yeah. now it supersedes the whole royalty question. Mm-hmm. What are we funding? That sort of thing. And instead asked a question, what songs are helpful to furthering my faith? What songs are most important to those ends? And if we look at these songs that these people put out, I don't think, I don't think any of them are really going to kind of meet that, is it really the best song for this particular moment? And, and see, you, you are saying this, but um, I, I know for a fact because I've heard people say that Oceans meets that for them. 
that they believe that oceans will be a song that they will that will sustain them. Um, well, are those people like the worship ministers and things like that? Like a pastor told uh, that to me. Oh, oh, I see what you're. Yeah, I I know what you're referring to. Um, but what I mean, well, I mean, yeah, that's an example, right? But I I guess that's the whole point. Right, it is, is the whole point. Is isn't there something better that we should be singing? And, and in that case, for sure, yes. And, and it doesn't really matter who's the one telling it to you. And this raises a completely different question for a completely different episode, but I'm going to kind of pose it now. And, okay. and it's all about the worship wars, you know, the fun colloquial little jig that is the contemporary versus traditional, you know, and, and it all centers around another fun buzzword called seeker sensitivity. Mm. And what do, what does it take to get people into your church? And for a lot of people, that answer is the music. And so some people will only go to your church if it is a fun rock and roll church. And that was a particular phrase that was uttered by a relative of mine. Um, and so, you're right. That is a whole other episode and oh, yeah. one that I think we should talk about. I we mean, absolutely should talk about. We both grew up in the era where that was very popular. And it's funny because I'll still see occasionally at uh, different church websites or whatnot, uh, our traditional services at nine and -hmm. our contemporary services at 11. And you're like, I know what kind of church this is. Oh yeah. There's a church right (laughs) now. still stuck in the nineties. There's a church down the street that they have like one of those like led billboards out front. And it's like, at at eight eight o'clock we have the traditional at nine 30, we have the blended. And then it's like, and then at 11 and it has like all the lights are down. There's lasers and stuff. And I always say, and at 11 we have the glow bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love the memes that are Uh, like, if you can't tell the difference between the club you go to on Saturday night and the church you go to on Sunday morning, then you have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and so, yeah, uh, the church I grew up in did, like at eight o'clock they had the service for all the old people where they could have the, the choir and the robes and sing out of the hymnal. And that was the only service that they did. That they did the that organ for. would probably, yeah, probably as so. well. Yeah. And, uh, and what that does is that's completely segre- segregates by age because the older people grew up with the hymns. And that's what they want to sing. But the younger people hate the hymns because that's what the old people like. I mean, that is just, it's all sorts of crazy stuff. And right. And it's getting... all stuff that's, unfocused on the, you know, the, yeah. the scripture and uh, about, you know, what is worship? Uh, and I think both sides are going to answer that question incorrectly. Right. And so but we're, that we're, is something we can something talk about a different episode, different episode. day. We might do it. We might do this next episode actually, because I don't have any plans for the next episode. And by the way, this cluster, like uh, I've talked about in the past that we kind of plan four episodes out at a time. We're just flying by the seat of our pants for these next few episodes. We kind of went off track and we were like, hey, this sounds fun. This sounds like a rabbit hole worth of episodes to do. And so sometimes occasionally we'll be like, the next episode we do this. The next one we're doing this. I don't know what we're doing next episode. We haven't decided yet. But that is how confident I am as you, as our listeners, to keep coming anyway. Uh, (laughs) 
but we yeah there's there's lots there's lots of things to, to talk about and i wanted to, to say one more royalty story before um before we wrap this one up and this is about Ele- okay. elevation church um stephen furtick who is the pastor of elevation church does not take a salary at his church uh, and, and he says this so that he can boast, I don't even take a salary. Um, but he gets all of his money from royalties on the music and royalties on book sales. And he has a writer's credit on every single one of Elevation's songs, even though he doesn't actually write any of the songs. But he has a writer's credit so that he gets the royalties. Um, he also, uh, they they will often do lots of series, like sermon series based on his books that he writes so that everyone in his church purchases a copy of his book and he gets royalties from it. And, mm. and he'll do, he gets invited to, to preach as a guest speaker at other churches. And he hires the pastors of those other churches to come be guest speakers at his church. And it's this big like ring of everyone goes and is, and does speaking engagements at each other's churches and they get paid for that. And they sell their books at that. And he gets money from that. He's like, He's a multimillionaire, makes all of his money on royalties, but he doesn't take a salary at his church so that he can say, I don't even take a salary at my church. It's not about the money. Whereas um, John Piper, who probably sells way more books than Stephen Furtick, gives all of his proceeds from these books away. He donates all of his, his royalty earnings to charities because for him, it's not about the money. And so... um that's just an, that's a fruit that is, you, you look at John Piper, you see, he just wants to spread the gospel. He is, he, his concern is in the gospel and spreading that. And, uh, and he does so very, very beautifully. He is a, he's a wonderful writer. Stephen Furtick, not as good of a writer, but he is all about the money. He pumps out books so that he can make the money. And, and that is seen in how he lives his life. It's seen in how he builds his house. It's seen in just how he grows his church and his ministry. And uh, and that is a little bit sickening. So just want to throw that out there. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, um, something to consider for sure. Uh, the next time you are either choosing music for worship or are sitting back in the congregation and thinking about uh, why you see the little CCLI pop up every time you're singing a song or you're supposed to anyway, unless of course you are either singing out of a hymnal or your very own Psalter. Yes. Yep. And, uh, and, and I'll, and I'll add this one more thing. Um, there's also very different. You don't have to worry about the royalties argument if you're not the one picking the songs. Um, if your music minister picks the songs and he play and he projects the lyrics to the songs, it doesn't matter if you sing or not. Um, that the writer of that song is going to get paid. And so, if the song passes the doctrinally the, the doctrinal questions, and it is being played at your church, and you you don't particularly like the ministry that it comes to, but you're okay with the song, I would say sing out. Um, you choosing to not sing is not going to affect anything at that point. Um, there have been multiple times, like Lion and the Lamb 
and uh, Holy Spirit. Those are the two songs that our church does that are Bethel songs. And, um, and I've been asked to sing them, and I have, because they pass the doctrinal test. If I were the one choosing the songs, I probably wouldn't ever choose either of those two songs for the reason of they come from Bethel. Um, and they're just better songs. There's better songs out there. So, so why settle for something that someone in your congregation likes to sing when there's just a better song out there? And uh, that's not the royalties argument, but the royalties argument does, it, it does play a part. And uh, so I just wanted to get that conversation going. I wanted everyone to, to think about it. And, uh, and I just, and I think it's a conversation that just, it just needs to be had. But I say, ultimately, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded listening to the Balm and Gilead podcast. We love hearing from you, so email us at thereis at balmcast.com. We are a part of the Tech Reformation family of podcasts, and you can discuss our show and much more at slack.techreformation.com. We'll see you there. If you enjoyed the Balm and Gilead podcast, please encourage others to listen. We value your feedback So rate, review, and recommend the show in your podcast app of choice. And with that, we'll see you next time on the Balm in Gilead podcast. But if Gilead Sciences were to start putting their toenails, toenails, they start to dip their toes into... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start that one over. But so if... (laughs) Oh, that's a good, that's a good one for the blooper reel. Let's try not to giggle. <laughs> um,